Hello, welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar, and here we are, episode 7 in the pandemic season of Hari Cuts. Ah, it is still a global pandemic out there, but we're here to take a respite from all of that and to get away from the news of the pandemic and the horribleness of what's happening around the world. And we're doing that by reading aloud through David Foster Wallace's uh, essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, written back in 1996 in which we get to actually go with David Foster Wallace on a cruise. So here we are, episode seven, which means this is six sections of the essay later. Six sections, 23 pages, 26 footnotes later, and we are now finally at sea with David Foster Wallace on a luxury cruise ship about to go on a seven-night Caribbean luxury cruise. Ah, can you imagine it? Ah, the yellow sun, the blue waves, the white sands, the clear, sparkling sky. Ah, let's go. Let's see what this is going to be about. So without further ado, let's jump into section seven of a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again with David Foster Wallace from 1996. <laughs> The whole first two days and nights are bad weather, with high-pitched winds and heaving seas, spume lashing the portholes glass, etc. Footnote 27, the single best new vocabulary word from this week, spume. Second best was scheiße, which one German retiree called another German retiree who kept beating him at darts. For 40-plus hours, it's more like a luxury North Sea cruise, and the celebrity staff goes around looking regretful but not apologetic, footnote 28, this expression resembling a kind of facial shoulder shrug as at fate. And in all, all fairness, it's hard to find a way to blame Celebrity Cruises Incorporated for the weather, footnote 29, though I can't help noting that the weather in a Celebrity 7 and C brochure was substantially nicer. On gale force days like the first two, passengers are advised to enjoy the view from the railings on the lee side of the nadir. The one other guy who ever joins me in trying out the non-lee side has his glasses blown off by the wind. And he does not appreciate my remarking to him that Around-the-ear cable arms are better for uh, high-wind viewing. I keep waiting to see somebody from the crew wearing the traditional yellow slicker, but no luck. The railing I do most of my contemplative gazing from is on deck 10, so the sea is way below, and the sounds of it slopping and heaving around are far away and surf-like. And visually, it's a little like looking down into a flushing toilet. No shark fins in view. In heavy seas, hypochondriacs are kept busy taking their gastric pulse every couple seconds and wondering whether what they're feeling is maybe the onset 
of seasickness uh, and or gauging the exact level of seasickness they're feeling. Seasickness-wise, though, it turns out that heavy seas are sort of like battle. There's no way to know ahead of time how you'll react. A test of the deep and involuntary stuff of a man. I, myself, turn out not to get seasick. An apparent immunity, deep and unchosen, and slightly miraculous, given that I have every other kind of motion sickness listed in the PDR and cannot take anything for it. Footnote 30. I have a deep and involuntary reaction to Dramamine, Dramamine, whereby it sends me pitching forward to lie prone and twitching wherever I am when the drug kicks in. So I am sailing the nadir cold turkey. For the whole first rough sea day, I puzzle about the fact that every other passenger on the MV Nader looks to have received identical little weird shaving cuts below their left ear, which in the case of female passengers seems especially strange. Until I learn that the little round band-aid-ish things on everybody's neck are these special new nuclear-powered transdermal motion sickness patches, which apparently now nobody with any kind of clue about seven and sea luxury cruising leaves home without. Patches notwithstanding, a lot of the passengers get seasick anyway these first two howling days. It turns out that a seasick person really does look green, though it's an odd ghostly green pasty and toadish, and more than a little corpse-like when a seasick person is dressed in formal dinner wear. For the first two nights, who's feeling seasick and who's not, and who's not now, but was a little while ago, or isn't feeling it yet, but thinks it's maybe coming on, etc., is a big topic of conversation. At good old Table 64, in the five-star Caravelle restaurant, footnote 31. This is on deck seven, the serious dining room, and it's never called just the Caravelle restaurant, and never just the restaurant. It's always the five-star Caravelle restaurant. Common suffering and fear of suffering turn out to be a terrific icebreaker, and icebreaking is important. Because on a 7NC, you eat at the same designated table with the same companions all seven nights. Footnote 32, and this is a long, long footnote. So I'm going to come back to it because it is just a hilarious footnote talking about the seven people that, that um, or the people that David Foster Wallace is going to be seated at, at this table with. But back to the essay. Discussing nausea and vomiting while eating intricately intricately prepared and heavy gourmet foods doesn't seem to bother anybody at Table 64. Even in heavy seas, 7NC megaships don't yaw or throw you around or send bowls of soup sliding across tables. Only a certain subtle unreality to your footing lets you know you're not on land. At sea, a room's floor 
feels somehow 3D, and your footing demands a slight attention good old planar static land never needs. You don't ever quite hear the ship's big engines, but when your feet are planted, you can feel them. A kind of spinal throb. It's oddly soothing. Walking is a little dreamy also. There are constant slight shifts in torque from the wave's action. When heavy waves come straight at a megaship's snout, the ship goes up and down along its long axis. This is called pitching. It produces a disorienting deal where you feel like you're walking on a very slight downhill grade and then level, and then on a very slight uphill grade. Some evolutionary retrograde reptile brain part of the CNS is apparently reawakened, though, and manages all this so automatically that it requires a good deal of attention to notice anything more than that walking feels a little dreamy. Rolling, on the other hand, is when waves hit the ship from the side and make it go up and down along its crosswise axis. Footnote 33 which, again, with a megaship like this, is subtle. Even at its worst, the rolling never made chandeliers tinkle or anything fall off surfaces, though it did keep a slightly unplumbed drawer in cabin 1009's complex wonder closet rattling madly in its track, even after several insertions of Kleenex and strategic points. When the MV Nader rolls... What you feel is a very slight increase in the demands placed on the muscles of your left leg. Then, a strange absence of all demand. And then demands on the right leg. The demands shift at the rate of a very long thing swinging. And again, the action is usually so subtle that it's almost a meditative exercise to stay conscious of what's going on. We never pitch badly, but every once in a while some really big Poseidon Adventure-grade single wave must come and hit the nader's side, because every once in a while the asymmetric leg demands won't stop or reverse, and you keep having to put more and more weight on one leg until you're exquisitely close to tipping over and have to grab something. Footnote 34. This on-the-edge moment's exquisiteness is something something like the, the couple seconds between knowing you're going to sneeze and actually sneezing. Some kind of marvelous, distended moment of transferring control to large, automatic forces. The sneeze analogy thing might sound freaky, but it's true. And Trudy said she'll back me up. And Trudy, by the way, is one of uh, the companions at the dinner table, whom we'll get to meet in footnote 32, and I go back to it at the end of the section. Back to the essay. Until you're exquisitely close to tipping over and have to grab something. It happens very quickly, and never twice in a row. The cruise's first night features some really big waves from starboard. And in the casino after supper, 
it's hard to tell who's had too much of the 71 Rishborg and who's just doing a role-related stagger. Add in the fact that most of the women are wearing high heels, and you can imagine some of the vertiginous staggering, flailing, clutching that goes on. Almost every one of the Nader has come on in couples, and when they walk during heavy seas, they tend to hang on each other like freshman steadies. You can tell they like it. The women have this trick of sort of folding themselves into the men and snuggling as they walk, and the men's postures improve, and their faces firm up, and you can, t- you can tell they feel unusually solid and protective. A Seven and Sea luxury cruise is full of these odd little unexpected romantic nuggets, like trying to help each other walk when the ship rolls. You can sort of tell why older couples like to cruise. Heavy seas are also great for sleep, it turns out. The first two mornings, there's hardly anybody at early seating breakfast. Everybody sleeps in. People with insomnia of year standing report uninterrupted sleep of nine hours, ten hours. Their eyes are wide and childlike with wonder as they report this. Everybody looks younger when they've had a lot of sleep. There's rampant daytime napping, too. By week's end, when we'd had all manner of weather, I finally saw what it was about heavy seas and marvelous rest. In heavy seas, you feel rocked to sleep. With the windows spume a gentle shushing, the engines throb a mother's pulse. That's the end of section seven. And now let me go back and read that uh, really delicious uh, footnote 32, uh, where he's just described good old table 64 in the five-star Caravelle restaurant. Um, On a seven and sea, you eat at the same designated table with the same companions all seven nights. Footnote 32. There were seven other people with me at good old table 64, all from South Florida, Miami, Tamarack, Fort Lauderdale itself. Four of the people knew each other in private landlocked life and had requested to be at the same table. The other three people were an old couple and their granddaughter, whose name was Mona. I was the only first-time luxury cruiser at Table 64 and also the only person who referred to the evening meal as supper, a childhood habit I could not seem to be teased out of. With the conspicuous exception of Mona, I liked all my table mates a lot, and I want to get a description of supper out of the way in a fast footnote and avoid saying much about them for fear of hurting their feelings by noting any weirdnesses or features that might seem potentially mean. Hari note, yeah, sure, he wants to get it out of the way in a fast footnote, but it turns out, nah, this is going to be a long footnote because of Mona. Back to the footnote. I want to note supper out of the way in a fast footnote, you know, because I don't want to hurt their feelings by noting any weirdnesses or features that might seem potentially mean. There were some pretty weird aspects to the Table 64 ensemble, though. For one thing, they all had thick, 
and unmistakable New York City accents. And yet they swore up and down that they had all been born and raised in South Florida. Although it did turn out that all the T-64 adults' own parents had been New Yorkers. Which, when you think about it, is compelling evidence of the durability of a good, thick New York City accent. Besides me, there are five women and two men. And both men were completely silent. Except on the subjects of golf, business, transdermal motion sickness prophylaxis, and the legalities of getting stuff through customs. The women carried Table 64's conversational ball. One of the reasons I liked all these women, except Mona, so much was because they laughed really hard at my jokes, even lame or very obscure jokes. Although they all had this curious way of laughing where they sort of screamed before they laughed. I mean, really and discernibly screamed, so that for one excruciating second, you could never tell whether they were getting ready to laugh or whether they were seeing something hideous and scream-worthy over your shoulder across the five-star CR. And this was disconcerting all week. Also, like many other 7NC luxury cruise passengers I observed, they all seemed to be uniformly stellar at anecdotes and stories and extended setup jokes, employing both hands and faces to maximum dramatic effect knowing when to pause and when to go run on, how to double take, and how to set up a straight man. My favorite table mate was Trudy, whose husband was back home in Tamarack, managing some sudden crisis at the couple's cellular phone business, and had given his ticket to Alice, their heavy and very well-dressed daughter, who was on spring break from Miami U, and who was for, for some reason extremely anxious to communicate to me that she had a serious boyfriend, capital S, capital B, the name of which serious boyfriend was Patrick. Alice's part of most of her interfaces consisted of remarks like, Oh, you hate fennel? What a coincidence! My boyfriend Patrick absolutely detests fennel. Or, you're from Illinois? What a coincidence. My boyfriend Patrick has an aunt whose first husband was from Indiana, which is right near Illinois. Or, you have four limbs? What a coincidence. And so on. Alice's continual assertion of her relationship status may have been a defensive tactic against Trudy, who kept pulling professionally retouched four by five glossies of Alice out of her purse and showing them to me with Alice sitting right there, and who, every time Alice mentioned Patrick, suffered some sort of weird facial tick or grimace where one side's canine tooth showed and the other side's didn't. Trudy was 56, the same age as my own dear personal mom, and looked, Trudy did, and I may mean this in the nicest possible way, Trudy looked like Jackie Gleason in drag, and had a particularly loud pre-laugh scream that was a real arrhythmia producer, and was the one who coerced me into Wednesday night's conga line, and got me strung out on snowball jackpot bingo, and also was an incredible lay authority on 7NC luxury cruises, 
this being her sixth in a decade. She and her friend Esther, thin-faced, subtly ravaged-looking, the distaff part of the couple from Miami, had tales to tell about Carnival, Princess, Crystal, and Cunard, too fraught with libel potential to reproduce here. And one long review of what was apparently the worst cruise line in 7NC history. One, quote, American Family Cruises, unquote, which folded just after six months, involving outrages, outrages too literally incredible to be believed from any duo less knowledgeable and discerning than Trudy and Esther. Plus, it started to strike me that I had never before been party to such a minute and exacting analysis of the food and service of a meal I was just at that moment eating. Nothing escaped the attention of T and E. The symmetry of the parsley sprigs atop the boiled baby carrots, the consistency of the bread, the flavor and mastication friendliness of various cuts of meat, the celerity and flambe technique of the various pastry guys in tall white hats who appear tableside when items had, had to be set on fire. Uh, a major percentage of the desserts in the five-star CR had to be set on fire. And so on. The waiter and busboy kept circling the table going, finish? Finish? While Esther and Trudy had exchanges like, honey, you don't look happy with the conch. What's the problem? Oh, I'm fine. I'm, it's fine. Everything's fine. Don't lie. Honey, with that face, who could lie? Frank, am I right? This is a person with a face incapable of lying. Is it the potatoes or the conch? Is it the conch? There's nothing wrong, Esther, darling. I swear it. You're not happy with the conch. All right, I've got a problem with the conch. Did I tell you? Frank, did I tell her? Frank silently probes own ear with Pinky. Was I right? I could tell just by looking you weren't happy. I'm fine with the potatoes. It's the conch. Did I tell you about seasonal fish on ships? What did I tell you? The potatoes are good. Mona is 18. Her grandparents have been taking her on a luxury cruise every spring since she was five. Mona always sleeps through both breakfast and lunch and spends all night at the Scorpio Disco and in the Mayfair Casino playing the slots. She's 6'2", if she's an inch. She's going to attend Penn State next fall because the agreement was that she would receive a four-wheel drive vehicle if she went someplace where there might be snow. She was unabashed in recounting this college selection criterion. She was an incredibly demanding passenger and diner, but her complaints about slight aesthetic and gustatory imperfections at table lacked Trudy and Esther's discernment and integrity and came off as simply churlish. Mona was also kind of strange-looking, a body like Bridget Nielsen or some centerfold on steroids, and above it, framed in resplendent and frizzless blonde hair, the tiny, delicate, pale, unhappy face of a kind of corrupt doll. Her grandparents, who retired every night after supper, always made a small ceremony after dessert of handing Mona $100 to, quote, go have some fun with. This $100 bill 
was always in one of those little ceremonial bank envelopes that has B. Franklin's face staring out of a porthole-like window in the front. And written on the envelope in red magic marker was always, We love you, honey. Mona never once said thank you for the money. She also rolled her eyes at just about everything her grandparents said, a habit that quickly drove me up the wall. I find I'm not as worried about saying potentially mean stuff about Mona as I am about Trudy and Alice and Esther and Esther's mute, smiling husband, Frank. Apparently, Mona's special customary little gig on 7NC luxury cruises is to lie to the waiter and mater day and say that Thursday is her birthday so that at the formal supper on Thursday, she gets bunting and a heart-shaped helium balloon tied to her chair and her own cake and pretty much the whole restaurant staff comes out and forms a circle around her and sings to her. Her real birthday she informs me on Monday, is 29 July. And when I observe that 29 July is also the birthday of Benito Mussolini, Mona's grandmother shoots me kind of a death look. Though Mona herself is excited at the coincidence, apparently confusing the names Mussolini and Maserati. Because it just so happens that Thursday, 16 March, really is the birthday of Trudy's daughter Alice, and because Mona declines to forfeit her fake birthday claim and instead counterclaims that her and Alice's sharing bunting and natal attention at 316's formal supper promises to be radical, Alice has decided that she wishes Mona all kinds of ill. And by Tuesday, 14 March, Alice and I have established a kind of anti-Mona alliance. And we amuse each other across Table 64 by making subtly disguised little strangling and stabbing motions whenever Mona says anything. A set of disguised motions Alice told me she learned at various excruciating public suppers in Miami with her serious boyfriend Patrick, who apparently hates almost everyone he eats with. And that's footnote 32. All right. <laughs> so that's the uh, the first two days or so of cruising with uh, heavy, heavy seas. But uh, at least we got to see a little bit of shipboard life on a cruise ship. Uh, so a few hearty notes here. Um, one is uh, I actually have been on a cruise. Um, and it turns out uh, it was probably 1998 when I w went on this cruise. Um, and it was also a seven-night luxury cruise. Uh, but it was actually to Alaska. Uh, on a Holland America cruise ship. Uh, so it wasn't the Caribbean, it wasn't Celebrity, but it was around the same same time period, 98, 96 is when David Foster Wallace is in the Caribbean. Um, and of course, I hadn't read this essay at that time. Uh, and for me at that time, you know, being on that cruise ship, that was, it was just such a luxurious experience. I, I really enjoyed the cruise a lot. And, and so reading this brings back a lot of memories of that cruise and this idea of, you know, on that cruise too, um, everybody sat at the same uh, dinner table throughout the, the week. Um, and one day in particular was supposed to be a formal dinner event. Um, 
and and I, I still remember some of the the, the dinner uh, companions around that table. Uh, so it's it's really fun for me to to hear David Foster Wallace uh, talk about these these different dinner companions. Um, the other thing that's interesting for me as I'm reading this is the way he describes pitching and rolling and and the feeling of being on the cruise ship. Um, and you know when he, when he describes uh, that heavy seas are great for sleep, and he says the first two mornings there's hardly anybody at early seating breakfast and everybody sleeps in. Um, I have a feeling David Foster Wallace might have also missed another very, very obvious and easy explanation for why. Uh, he gets, you know, close when he says to the end, he goes, like, in heavy seas, you feel rocked asleep with the window spume a gentle shushing, the engines throb, a mother's pulse. Well, taking away the mother's pulse element of it, uh, that's all quite romantic. And I have a feeling that most people that uh, skipped early breakfast did it not necessarily because they had a good night's sleep, but maybe also because many of them were couples. Um, it's it's quite a romantic thing to spend a night at sea, especially with heavy seas. Um, the other thing I was uh, struck by is as he's describing the uh, the table companions and the and Mona especially and the, the annoying characteristics of Mona. Um, it actually made me nostalgic for annoying people like that. And, and uh, you know, I, I can't remember the last time that I was actually out at a restaurant, you know, uh, having a nice dinner with a group, group of people. Um, I do remember the last time that I was actually out to eat. It was with my friend Kevin at work. And we went to lunch at a sushi restaurant just down the street from where I work. And, and that was the last time I actually went out to a restaurant, uh, you know, and I remember Kevin and I uh, talking about work and, 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 you know, gossiping about some of our annoying work colleagues. Um, and gosh, that was over six weeks ago. And, and I have no idea when we'll ever <laughs> go out to a restaurant uh, again. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen for ah, forever now. And, and so... This is one of those times where I now miss my annoying work colleagues. Uh, I, I miss uh, the the petty politics, uh, uh, at, you know, the, the, the annoyances at at at, uh, at a restaurant when you go out with a group of friends, and there's always that one annoying friend that that you all know is just annoying. Um, uh, what I would give to to be able to have that now, and um, and of course, the situation is is a lot serious out there. Um, restaurants and dinner and, and annoying friends seem like luxuries now when you know so many people are are dying, so many people are are seriously ill. So many people, even the mild cases of coronavirus are 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 really difficult to go through for a lot of people. Um, the isolation, the quarantine, uh, even if you're not sick with coronavirus, the 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 annoying people that you're stuck at home with uh, are 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 certainly no laughing matter. Um, so um, I hope y'all stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, and stay human. See you tomorrow for section eight.